I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Amber Banks, a PE and M&A partner at Free Frank in New York. Amber, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about several things. First, your background, how you came to the law. Second, you're a young partner. So what you really enjoyed about being an associate and what drew you to the practice and what you found more challenging about law firm life. A deal you worked on last year involving Forever 21. How your experiences as an associate shaped how you think law firms could better manage associates and make themselves more hospitable places for women and people of diversity. And then finally, you're delivering a child last summer during the pandemic. So first, tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to decide to go to law school and what drew you to a corporate practice. Sure. So honestly, I didn't really have a background in law. I grew up in what was a pretty rural small town that became a bigger town as I grew up in it and then became a suburb at some point once I had left of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I didn't really have a history. And no one in my family was a lawyer. I'm one of five kids. Only two of us went to and finished college. It wasn't really something that was predestined for me. It was something that... I don't know. I wanted to get out of Texas. I wanted to get out of this small town. I wanted to be something bigger than I felt like people envisioned for me at that point in my life. So I went to undergrad in the University of San Diego. My parents, when I was 18, they didn't sort of shake my hand and say goodbye, but you know, I was a bit on my own. You know, this was, I was like I said, I was one of five kids. I worked full-time all through college to be able to support myself and put myself through college. I literally would go on a monthly basis and pay part of my tuition in for my cash tips from having waitressed. You know, it wasn't this sort of traditional experience. Actually, after college, I wanted a break. I went and worked in finance for a couple of years and I got to touch things in the MA field and really always thought lawyers were fantastic and I wanted to be able to do MA. And so why not go be an MA lawyer? You know, to me at that point, especially in my life and growing up, I didn't really know what private equity was. In fact, I wouldn't have had any idea what it was. I didn't really have that background that said you were predestined for this. So I applied to law schools. Um, I did really well. You know, in undergrad, I tied for ranking first in my class and ended up getting into Harvard Law School. And I remember one of my brothers being like, why didn't you, you got like a full scholarship to like UT. Why didn't you go to UT? Who's paying for this? And I was like, who paid for undergrad? Like I'm paying for this. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, I mean, look, I, I, when I got to Harvard, I think like many students who, you know, weren't born and bred for this, I second guess myself. I you know, was among people whose parents were buying them apartments and who were giving them allowances of more money than I'd even ever understood. And I had to figure it out. I remember, you know, I've always been kind of a saver. And I remember just feeling like I wasn't, even though I knew I could compete intellectually and I knew I could do the work and I knew I could do well, I felt like I was a step behind in so many aspects and so many things because it just wasn't the experience I'd had up until that point. 
Was that something you felt at Harvard or you felt early in your time in practice? And was there a point at which you realized that you could compete at that level? Because clearly you must have been stimulated by the challenge of going to school there and then of practicing at an elite level. You know, I think that I I quickly realized, like I said, on the intellectual level, I I could do well. I could do well in classes. I was one of those, I think they they called them gunners when I was there, but maybe they don't do that anymore. But, you know, one of those people who love to raise their hand and love to try and answer things and be prepared. And I knew I could do that. But I also knew that I was always going to be catching up in other aspects of things. I didn't have that family background. I didn't have those experiences. But I had also worked since I was like, 14 years old. So I had these advantages, but I also had these disadvantages. And I guess maybe that's just sort of everyone's experiences. You have things that you can draw upon and then you have things where you're always sort of trying to catch up. I definitely felt, especially when I was in school and when I was coming up as a sort of baby lawyer, I felt like I had to fit into this package of what everyone else expected of me. I think I felt like I needed to listen to all these people who knew better than me and along the way, I started losing myself. I started losing the genuine person that I was. I think I I felt like I was taking all this advice of what you're supposed to look like and what you're supposed to sound like. And you're supposed to be nice, but not too nice. And you're supposed to, you know, look a certain way. And you're supposed to wear a certain suit. And I was so seduced by the idea of being successful and being and achieving all these things that I think people where I came from or in my position, didn't normally get to achieve, I felt the weight of that on me. And I think that, you know, for a very, very long time, I let that shape the person that I was becoming. I'm curious, you mentioned you had been a a waitress when you were in college. Did did you see any similarity between the, the skills you learned there, reading a table, dealing with a challenging customer, figuring out what people might want, even when they don't know it, and practicing law. I mean, they're both service professions, even though they're at opposite ends of the economic scale. No, absolutely. I think that in particular did actually prepare me for dealing with lots of different types of personalities, dealing with lots of types of people, for being able to stand up and exist in experiences that are difficult. I mean, as a waitress, you get yelled at. Things are said to you that are probably inappropriate. You are dealing with time constraints. You are rushing around. Yeah, it's difficult. And I think also, I mean, oh my gosh, the laundry list of jobs I had since I was like a young kid. I don't even think kids have jobs anymore. But, you know, I taught gymnastics. I worked at a vet. I was a waitress. I did the books for small businesses. Like I did all kinds of different crazy things along the way. And I think each of them taught me to be able to exist and understand a lot of different groups of people. But I will say, I never really got to experience sort of this upper echelon of people because I waitress at not the most exciting places. But I think it really did teach me a lot. And it really prepared me in the sense of this wasn't my first job when I got to out of law school. And it was something that I felt comfortable at the time of, of putting myself out there because I had been in front of people. Did people, when you were in law school or or especially early in your time in practice, tell you, look, this is a real advantage? Because, in fact, many of our lawyers don't, you know, haven't had to develop these skills. You have them. 
you just need to apply them in a different context than you would have in San Diego or growing up in Texas. You know, it's interesting. I don't think actually anyone ever did. And I think probably to some extent, I didn't talk about it that much. It wasn't something that I wanted to necessarily highlight. It wasn't the most glamorous thing to say. I had to work as a waitress to put myself through undergrad. These are not the things that impress the type of people that are clients of of big law firms. And maybe I should have. I think looking back on that now, I wish I had had more confidence in the person that I was to say, yes, this is this skill that you're seeing is coming from this, this experience that maybe you wouldn't have thought would have gotten me here, but it did. But I do think that early on in my career, people did latch on to and, and point out and say, oh, look, you have a presence that you know some other people don't have, probably because I stood in front of a million different people, you know, asking them for their orders and you know, chatting them up to try and make sure I was getting a good tip. But I think with that comes a confidence that is monumental to being able to do this job. But I also think that for me, it was... I also had this insecurity about it. And I think I had an insecurity about not being a person who was born into doing this. So how long did it take you to apply the confidence you you had in, in one realm into the realm of being a corporate lawyer and realize that there were more similarities than people in either world might assume? You know, I think the first, I, I think there's two pieces to that. I think on, on the one hand, I think I learned pretty early on to apply just the ability I had to speak in front of people, the ability I had to carry on a conversation with a wide variety of people to try and ingratiate myself to them, to pause, to read people, to make those quick assessments, to figure out the person that I sort of needed to mold myself into to become likable to them. I think I figured that out pretty quickly. And I think that helped me greatly in my early career. I think what I didn't figure out and the confidence that I didn't apply that now I have figured out was that I didn't have enough confidence that I was enough or that I was acceptable, that I... And I think this is what a lot of women, you know, attorneys of color, I think this is some of the things that we feel. We feel like we don't have necessarily the confidence that we don't have to contort ourselves into something else in order to be successful. And I definitely, I firmly believed that for a very long time that I, I, that I was not, me as myself was not enough, that I needed to be all the things that other people wanted me to be. And I didn't have enough confidence in just that, that I could be successful to the level I wanted to be successful if I was just me. So so you felt in some ways that you were playing the role of the corporate lawyer, especially earlier in your career, and you knew how to do that, but you didn't know how to do that in in a way that was authentic to you or in a way that you really felt comfortable in. Right. I mean, I think that for so much of my career, I was so focused. And like I said, I think I I was seduced by wanting to be successful. And I was trying to fit within the cultural norms within the conventional wisdom of, of what you know a good lawyer looks like. And there's very few women. There's very few people who I could look up to. And so I, I tried so hard to make myself and mold myself into the person that I thought I needed to be in order to be successful. 
And I think that there came a point in my career where I realized that I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to do this if I couldn't do it on my own terms, if I couldn't do be my authentic self. And that's an incredibly, incredibly privileged point to be in. But I think it was that acknowledgement that I was willing to give up all the benefits of it, all the things that I wanted out of it, if I couldn't do it on my terms anymore. Was there a was there a specific time when you realized you could balance those two desires, have the practice you wanted and be the person you wanted? Or, or does that remain a, a struggle? It's a it's going to it's a huge struggle. It's going to probably continue to be a struggle. I think it's going to probably be a struggle my entire career. Unfortunately, I don't think that I've ever felt confident. You know, me putting this out there and being my authentic self and saying, look, I, I this is who I am. This is what I believe in. This is the kind of lawyer I want to be. This is the kind of practice I want to have. And I'm going to do it in an authentic way. And if that means I can't have the successes that I aspire to, I'm okay with that. And that's that's a loss. And that's a huge loss. And I genuinely believe that. And it's not you know egotistical. It's just I, I recognize that because I recognize it in other incredibly amazing women that I come across in the law in amazing, incredible, diverse attorneys, attorneys of color, LGBTQ people who are struggling with the idea that can I be my authentic self? Can I stand up for myself? Can I, can I wear my hair long? Can I wear my hair in braids? Can I do all these things that people sort of may have looked at me and said, well, that may not be that great for your career. Can I do that? And still be and still be successful. I hope the answer is yes, and I want desperately more than anything for it to be yes. But if it's not, then I'm okay walking away. Do you think this is something that really does come from the clients, or does it come more from the, the firms and and the, the subtle pressure within law firms as institutions to conform to some sort of ideal of what? A lawyer should be, and in many cases, even though this is probably a little less conscious, look like. No, I mean I think it's both. I, I everyone's guilty. Let's start with the legal industry. The legal industry, we're laggards. We're risk averse. We do things in a traditional, conventional way. We look at what we call, you know, conventional wisdom, and we don't even think about it. We don't question the underpinnings of it enough or at all, frankly. And we are slow to change and we're worried about what will happen if we do change. If you had told lawyers two years ago that everyone was going to work at home for a year, people would have been up in arms. Like this was people, we have desktops, people need to be in the office, they need to be, it's, we struggle as an industry with change and we struggle with thinking outside the box. And I, I think clients are actually the same to some extent. I think clients are actually getting better. And I think that's helping move the needle. But, you know, there's this conventional wisdom that in order to sell a public company, you need a white man with gray hair in the boardroom. And I don't know why. I don't... The reality is the people doing the work making that deal happen may not look like that. And they don't need to look like that. And I think until we change those viewpoints, it's not going to change. You know, there are I, there are fantastic public companies that are making changes. Tony West at Uber recently was on a podcast and talked about how Uber is really going to start focusing on these metrics. Not just, are you bringing me diverse teams, but who is bringing me diverse teams? Who is getting credit? How senior are they? And I think those initiatives and those changes 
are really going to push the legal industry because we just don't. We don't have the buy-in yet. I think we want to. I think we talk about it. We, we talk about it. We, we talk and we put things on our websites and we have a lot of window stressing and we do all the things that we need to do to be able to hit certain metrics. So we're on rankings and lists and all the right organizations and we donate money and we sponsor programs. But at the end of the day, I'm not entirely sure we've really changed the hearts and minds of the lawyers. And in some cases, the clients and, you know, those clients look and feel a lot different depending on who they are. But so many lawyers still see this as a zero sum game where focusing on diversity means I might lose something if I'm not diverse. And that's just not true. Diversity, especially at institutional levels, especially at corporate levels, we can grow the pie. It doesn't have to be that someone is taking something from you. We can grow the pie. We can attract new clients. We can obtain better retain existing clients. We can improve our services. If we realize that study after study after study has told us that diverse teams just do better, they bring in more revenue, and we believed that and we bought into that idea, we can make the pie bigger, whether it's at a law firm, whether it's at a corporate. And I think that there's always this, this fear, especially because, look, there are a very homogenous group of people at the top and they worry about what about me? What about my sons? What about, you know, how are they going to get ahead? How are they going to get a job? I struggled. I overcame hurdles. And, and their fear is at the end of the day that they're not going to be able to succeed in this new diverse world because of their gender or their color of their skin. And I just want to scream at them. Yes, yes, that's it. That's it. That's all we're saying. We're saying that it shouldn't be a hurdle to your ability to succeed because of the color of your skin or because of your gender. And that has existed for so many other people for so long. And it is both ethically unfounded and it is wrong, but it's also capitalistically not right. It's not capitalistically sound for us to know that diverse teams do better and to know that there's people who have had to overcome more and they have had to work twice as hard to get to the same place and not believe that they are as good as the person that we think looks the part. So how can law firms do a better job in this regard, especially given that they depend so much on the work of associates who for many, many years have been diverse, both in terms of gender and race. And how can law firms retain more of those associates until they become senior associates? And in the case of the best lawyers among them, make those lawyers partners and help them succeed as partners. So, I mean, I think any firm you ask would tell you that their goal, their and hopefully their genuine goal is that they want all of these things and they feel like they've tried and tried and tried and it's not working. And I think I would posit to them, one, everyone wants this, but they're afraid to take the real drastic steps that it would take to change. Because the reality is when you're in a position of power, sometimes it can be scary and it's scary for everyone. It's scary for the people at the top and it's scary for the people at the bottom to do these things, to have these conversations and to make changes that may be uncomfortable. What might those changes be? I mean, how would you change associate development to help 
lawyers who didn't look like the, the stereotype of the senior M&A partner succeed, whether that means staying at the firm a little longer, making partner, going to another opportunity that that lawyer is really excited about. So I think I'm going to say, again, really unpopular things. One, I hate when we talk about the idea that law firms are this meritocracy. And when we're trying to increase our diversity, that somehow you know, we're lowering our standards. It's offensive. It's, it's wrong and it's offensive. The reality is that diverse candidates often have to work twice as hard and to overcome many times infinitely more hurdles than many of their traditional white cis male counterparts. And that's a reality. And I think we need to consider how we're talking about things. I think we need to see people in a different light. We need to realize that if two people are neck and neck, and I'm going to use this example because I love examples, they're playing Monopoly. And if they're starting to be neck and neck, if one person started with loaded dice and three times the money and park place with a hotel, like it's just, an, they started with a lot of advantages. That doesn't mean that they don't have struggles. It doesn't mean it wasn't hard, but if someone's managed to almost catch up to them, realize that that person, if you give them the runway and you keep encouraging them, imagine what they could do. Because I think sometimes we think that everyone starts the same and it's just simply not true. And we think that they have sort of the same experience just because they're in the same firm or they're just in front of the same clients. And that's just simply not true. We also have an inability and a resistance to wanting to talk about bias. We've all been through all the trainings and we find them annoying and we feel like we've talked about it to death. And why on earth do we have to keep talking about this? You know, haven't we done this? We've been doing this for decades. But the reality is these biases still exist and we haven't figured out a perfect way to get rid of them. And maybe we never will. But we need to acknowledge that they are there and they impact how people are viewed. And, and not only that, I think we are so eager to put on all these diversity programs and we are so eager to meet clients' needs of wanting more diverse teams that we actually are creating diversity fatigue in our diverse associates. We are asking them to be on the front lines of this. We're asking them to do all of their normal work, build all of their normal hours, but also be in charge of all of our diversity programs and educate our population on all these diversity issues and bring it to the forelight and to also be the most fantastic associate. And they need to be you know, the model associate for us so that we can show that someone in, that is diverse is succeeding and they need to do all the recruiting. And you know what? And if they're a woman, then they're going to go home and they're going to do their second shift at home, which we've seen time and time again in the pandemic. It is mind boggling how especially women have taken such a step back and they're so overloaded with everything that is being asked of them. It is not surprising that we can't keep them. And, and that's a hard conversation to have. It's a hard conversation that no one really wants to have. And the reality is, and I'm going to say something that's hard to hear, but we're not compensating people for it too. We're asking them to do all this extra work uncompensated, just like we ask oftentimes women to do extra work at home uncompensated. And until you change those dynamics, it's never going to be enough. And then on the client side, we talk about, and we want diverse teams. Well, then you're overloading the smaller pool of diverse associates. And until you're asking, how are they being benefited from my desire for greater diversity? 
you're not really necessarily making those changes. And I'm not saying that those programs aren't fantastic. I think they are an important and amazing first step. But I like what I'm hearing out of some clients where they say, I want to take it a step further. Because I think until we take it a step further, you know, we're going to hear and feel and see more of the same. And it's hard. It's hard. I can tell you, especially, you know, doing deals, being an M&A, there's not a lot of diversity. There's not a lot of diversity, especially at some of the clients. There's not a lot of diversity in our groups. I think it's changing and I think it's fantastic. I am so proud that my firm has four female partners in what is a very small group for M&A and private equity. And I think they're fantastic. And I think the women in private equity who I have gotten to know and who you know have been clients are amazing. They are phenomenal. They are some of the most impressive and dedicated people I've ever met. And I think we just need to keep supporting them. And I think we need to try building a network that works for them so that they want to stay, so they feel like they are not necessarily the only one. So if, if you were to encounter, say, the, the second year or third year associate version of yourself now, what would you tell that person and how concretely would you, as a partner, as someone who obviously owns a share in your firm, think about helping that person manage her career or maybe the next five or 10 years of it? You know, I think every single person is different, but I, I mean, me, the advice that I needed was I needed to be confident enough to walk away. And that's, that's so counterintuitive. And I think it, you can say that that doesn't solve the problem. But for me, as, as the person that I was, and I'm sure that there are many people who feel the same way as I do, that I was going to lose everything and I was going to run myself into the ground. And it was going to be a much worse experience for me to try and be the person that they wanted me to be, to try and subsume myself and within someone else's four walls, than to own my own experience and say, I'm going to do this on my terms. And I know that I can be successful and I know that I can do this. And I know that I'm smart and I'm intelligent and I can go toe to toe with any lawyer out there. But if you lose you, then it wasn't worth it. And and the reality is, I wouldn't have believed me. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have believed me. And I would have said, that's never going to work. And it's not until you hit your breaking point where you say, either I'm going to give up and I'm going to leave and I'm going to leave this behind because it's just too much. Or you say, you know what? I'm going to take a chance and I'm going to see if I can do this on my terms and if they tell me to leave and if they tell me I don't, there's no place for me and if the clients don't want me and they don't want to give me a chance, then there's nothing I could do. But at least I didn't lose who I was. And there was a point in my career where I just sort of hit my own personal, personal rock bottom. And I needed to hit that because I wouldn't have believed you otherwise. I needed to hit this breaking point where I could leave everything behind and I could rise up and I could be... That, that phoenix coming out of the ashes and I could say, this is me. And I know that I, I, I can do this. I can do your messy deal. I can do all of these things. I can stand in front of your board, but you know what? I'm going to do it with blonde hair and I'm going to do it with, the, uh, maybe it's not in a Brooks Brothers suit. Maybe it's in you know a suit that I like. And maybe it's, you know I'm going to do it and I'm going to be professional. I'm going to be articulate, but I may not look or necessarily feel 
the same way as the lawyers that came before me. And if that's not okay with you, then that's fine. But I'm not losing who I am anymore because it's not worth it. And yet through all of this, obviously, you you persisted in practicing law, you know, which suggests that you really love the practice itself. Could you talk about that in the context of the Forever 21 deal last year, which I think would have been one of the last deals you worked on before you went out on maternity? It was not one of the last deals I worked on before I went on maternity, but it was very interesting. So I love this. I actually, I really like this. I think there's a lot of people who tolerate this job and are good at it, but I enjoy it. I enjoy it immensely. I am this huge nerd. I came from a finance background. I love math. I love Excel spreadsheets. There's, there's, it's possibly like, I might have a problem with how much I love Excel spreadsheets. Everything in my house is on Excel spreadsheets. I, I just love it. I love the complicated. I love drafting new provisions. I love thinking through issues. I love solving problems for clients, not in the sense of how many deals can I do, but can I, together with my co-counsel and my opposing counsel, can we figure this out? These clients want to get this deal done and they have these impediments. How do we get around it? Instead of screaming at each other and just saying, no, 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 my, my way, my way. I like getting together and saying, how do we solve this problem? How do we get to the best deal for everyone where everyone feels like they gave a little, but they got a lot? I really enjoy that. And like it, I, you mentioned Forever 21, that was a really fun, interesting deal. This was a company that was incredibly distressed. And this is obviously all public. You know, We didn't buy it. It was going into liquidation. And it was this brand that while it's not necessarily things that are in my closet, it's definitely iconic. And I think people growing up, you know, shocked at these sort of fast fashion and, and Forever 21 was the iconic fast fashion brand. And, and so getting to work on these and solve these problems, that was interesting. We had to figure out about, you know, there is merchandise all over the world and who owns it because it's got liens on it and because, you know, we haven't necessarily paid for it, who's going to pay for it and trying to figure out all these assets where the team has sort of been disassembled and how are we going to revive this brand when at that point, we weren't even into the pandemic yet. We were in retail was not doing well. And what are we going to do with this? How can we make this a home run? Those were really interesting questions. And there was a lot of nuance and there was a lot of insightful things that we got to do and problems we got to solve. And I, and I love that. I think that that's, that's incredible and fantastic and interesting. I'm going to mention one other deal, even though we didn't talk about it. So I, I worked for, and this has also been publicly announced, I worked on for a deal for CVS and they were purchasing pharmacies out of a chain of supermarkets in the Midwest and going to then have CVSs inside this chain of supermarkets. Like you, you know, they, you see the targets, they have CVSs inside them. And that's something that's unique and interesting and different. And this is not necessarily just the deal. It's also this ongoing relationship. And how do you make sure that everyone feels comfortable with that? And those are issues of first impression, especially because Target's different than this Midwestern grocery chain. And those are really fantastically interesting things to be thinking about and drafting around and to be negotiating. And I love that. I love getting in the trenches with clients and doing a good job for them and solving their problems and having the camaraderie with everyone involved. At, at some point in your career, did someone say to you, look, if you convey that intelligence and that passion for solving a client's problem to the client, 
the client will be incredibly loyal. And in fact, the client doesn't really care about a lot of other stuff. If the client senses you care that much and you're that good at the job, the client doesn't care if you're an old white man. Uh, no, no one definitely, no one ever communicated that to me ever. So, so that's new. Thank you for that piece of information. Um, you know what? Honestly, I hope that's true. I guess sometimes I, I can be as jaded as any of the rest of them. But I, I think that was what, that was what I bought into. And I'm really, really hopeful that it, it pans out because I think that's what I, that's the world that I want to live in. I want to live in a world where if you work really hard and you actually believe in what you're doing and you want to do it well for your clients and you're bringing unique, great ideas that they will see that and that they will keep coming back for more, even if you don't necessarily look and feel like the lawyer that they were expecting. Um, I hope that clients will keep giving people like that opportunities. I, I, they don't have to be me. I, I hope that people, I hope that clients are looking at those things. And I think one of the things that is always scary, especially to younger partners and younger partners who may not fit the mold is the idea that we've built up this idea to clients that it's so hard to make a switch and, oh, you know, flavor of the month and all these things. But I really genuinely hope that more and more clients will really look for people who have passion and look for the people who are doing their deals and who are staying up and fighting for them and doing right by them and, and are finding unique and interesting solutions to their very, very real problems. And then finally, tell us a little bit about going out on maternity leave during the pandemic, being a parent to a baby during this whole situation. Well, they're called pandemic babies. Um, <laughs> it's the official term for them. Yeah, it was a weird time. So I literally went into lockdown back last March. And I was I just started telling people I was pregnant. And I was just starting to show. And then we're still not back. And like, it's like this weird black hole that no one really saw me pregnant. Like, it's just this bizarre. And now I have a baby. And <laughs> she's wonderful. And like, but I had the weirdest pandemic birth experience. So one, I, you stop going to all your doctor's appointments because, you know, during the pandemic, they didn't really want you coming in. So you're going to your doctor's appointments less. So I'm seeing my doctor, but not as much as you normally would. Six or six, seven months in. And all of a sudden she's like, Oh, by the way, I wanted to let you know that I'm also pregnant and I'm due two days, I think before you or two days. So we're like right neck and neck. Like, and so I'm actually not going to be around <laughs> your last month. And so I was like, oh, well, that would have been helpful. And I, I'm not going to lie. I kept suspecting, but like, you don't, like, you just you see someone gaining weight. And you're like, I'm not going to say anything. This woman has not told me she's pregnant. I don't know. I only seen her like once every few weeks. Like I, maybe she's not, maybe she, I don't know. It's pandemic. People are gaining weight. But so I didn't know she was pregnant. I genuinely didn't know. And then she, so she's like, well, I'm not delivering your baby. So that's fine. So then it gets towards the end and they're like, okay, we're going to induce you. So I'm going in it's in, this is in July. They induced me. It's a little bit before my delivery day. Also, by the way, genuinely 6am going into the hospital. My doctor is also going in to get induced. We're like waving at each other in the way they let her in first. I feel like that was like kind of unfair. Um, professional <laughs> courtesy. But it was a professional courtesy. Right. So, so we're in the hospital. They induced me. 
the hospital was like overrun like two days that I was there. And there's like people giving birth in the hallways. There's like not enough rooms. There's not enough beds. It's like very, very crazy. So they're like, oh, we're going to kind of like slow the process down. So like they let me be in labor for 36 hours, which is kind of crazy. Like we started at like 6 a.m. I don't think they did it, but we got there 6 a.m. on Thursday. And I didn't have this baby until 2.30 in the afternoon on Friday. So they're like, we're slowing down the process. I didn't really know what that meant, but I went in with a plan. I am a lawyer and I was like, I want an epidural. I am too old for this. I know you keep telling me I'm advanced maternal age. I, I want an epidural. I don't want to feel a thing. Whatever you can do. So they give me an epidural pretty early and I'm like, this is great. We're doing good. So then amidst all this craziness where like I'm only seeing my nurse every hour or so, I'm like, oh, I'm feeling some pain. So I, so I say something, I'm like, oh, no, no, that's fine. You're fine. You got an epidural. You're totally fine. So I'm like, okay. And then I'm then I'm feeling some more pain. And, and it's getting really intense. And I'm pushing the button. I'm pushing the button for the drugs. I'm pushing the button for the nurse. Like, no one's coming. I'm starting to tell my husband, I'm not sure if I can do this. I'm not entirely sure I knew what I was getting myself into. He's panicking. So then... We're like two hours in and I am that woman that is screaming. And I know everyone in the entire wing can hear me. I don't understand. I've had an epidural. I don't understand how I'm in so much pain. It's, I'm panicking. There's all these doctors and nurses coming in. They're telling me like, you're fine. Like you're an epidural. And then the anesthesiologist comes in and very calmly says, oh, your epidural unplugged a couple hours ago. And it's, this is not like it came out, like it just unplugged, like the two little things that go together, they came apart. And so I hadn't had anything for two hours. And then my doctor's like, okay, we're plugging it back in and you're going to feel better in about 15 minutes. But I got to tell you, this baby, this baby's coming. You need to start pushing. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, can we just not wait 15 minutes? He's like, I know. Usually we, I know we told you this is usually takes like two hours, but this baby is here and it's coming. And we think it's going to probably be here in like 30 minutes and we need you to start pushing. So my heart rate's off the charts and the baby's heart rate's off the charts. And like, there's alarms going off and then they're like, push, push, push. And there's all these people standing around me. And then there's like more people coming in because all the alarms are going off. And then there's like 20 people. And then someone's like, can we let all the teaching fellows in? And there's like 10 teaching fellows in the room. And they're just like, this is a teachable moment. And I was like, I'm not entirely sure it's a teachable moment, but it might be. And so there's just like, this is chaos and craziness. And so then 30 minutes later, this baby is here. <laughs> despite not having the epidural, despite all the chaos and then, then then it was fine and then I, I ate a salmon bagel because I, I hadn't had one in, in nine months and I was really wanting one that was it wow that sounds like quite an experience hopefully the train your corporate associates a little better than apparently the anesthesiologist was trained honestly I was not in a happy place at the time but now looking back on it it's just almost possibly funny story. Um, but I, I do really, really feel bad because they were really overrun. And I think with all the COVID precautions, it was just, it was just still really overwhelming. But yes, message to any women who are pregnant and or giving birth that you should constantly, if you feel pain, have someone check if that thing is connected, because that apparently is a real thing. Awesome. Well, Amber, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus.